Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. In the visual arts, the relationship of color to landscape might be differently rendered depending on the season, the time of day, the weather, more personally by emotional, psychological, or political relationships that the artist has to the land. What I've found as I've chased around the world looking at abandoned 500-year-old alum mining sites is another more tangential connection between color and place. Large, lucrative mines that caused huge environmental disruptions to tiny locales are today ridiculously difficult to locate. The first chemical industry is now wholly forgotten and almost entirely invisible. This program features the work of 2011 writer Donald Fells. Curator Susan Rich spoke with him in an interview. Do you consider yourself more of a writer or more of a painter? My painting is abstract. When I write, I tend to write about very concrete things and try to bring out abstract ideas. So when I'm painting, I'm trying to just play with planes and color and things like that. And maybe there's some set of ideas underneath. When I'm writing, I'm writing about very visible things that you would see also, but maybe I'm trying to get at an abstract structure that I see in my mind as underneath. Much of my writing has been about things that are moving through cultures. So I've looked a lot at trade, which is not a subject that, as far as I can tell, any other artists spend much time looking at. And to me, that seems really strange because every culture everywhere at any time has traded. And so by looking at what people trade, you are looking at what people do. If people in India, for example, spend a lot of time on cloth, that the cloth becomes uh, emblematic of much of the culture. So as a visual person writing, I might write about the cloth I see and try to trace back for the reader where these things came from. I mean, not historically, but I'm, I mean, why are these ladies all lined up at a counter to, to get a hold of a piece of silk? What, what is that about? Now we'll hear a selection from Donald's live reading. My first book, I circled around steel. And for this book, I'm circling around alum, which probably most of you didn't even know existed to circle around. <laughs> so um, the first thing I'm going to read, I've, I've chosen two small selections from that book. The first, I think, is going to serve as a bit of an introduction to the book. And the second is somewhere in the book itself. So the first selection I'm going to read is called Don't Forget, If You Dye Your Woolen Jacket, It Would Shrink. On a Sunday before Christmas, a couple weeks before heading up to Yorkshire, we went to a pop-up market in Spitafields at the old Truman Brewery. We knew nothing about the market or its setting in East London except the bit we'd gleaned from a book on the city's old marketplaces. The place was thick with thousands of festive holiday shoppers, most of whom seemed under the age of 30, and hundreds of vendors. There was also a bunch of mostly traditionally dressed ethnic food providers, seemingly all from ex-English colonies. The market is held in a drab, multi-story concrete car park on the edge of a half-empty complex once part of the Black Eagle Brewery, London's oldest, which dates back to the mid-17th century. 
The unheated concrete building was warmed considerably by the large numbers of thickly wrapped visitors and by the presence of hundreds of designers selling their distinct and colorful wearing apparel. Nonetheless, we could see our breath. In the city of London, the small but exceedingly powerful area in the middle of the larger metropolis and at the epicenter of world capitalism, the standard of dress for the small army of young men and women employed there is the stereotypical and thinly striped black three-piece suit generally ill-fitting and of poor material. <laughs> Young people come Sundays to the pop-up markets to find clothes that actually please them. At Spitalfields, they buy directly from talented young London fashion designers. Other vendors are selling vintage clothing called from many epics. Almost immediately as I entered the main space, I was attracted to the booth of a man about my age who looked like we might be related. On display was crisply tailored military garb of some past time. Most of what he had on offer in December were thick woolen coats. The coats, all a dapper three-quarters length, were northern-looking gray-green heather of a subtle sheen suggesting some sort of protected life. I greeted the seller, who answered my salutation in thickly accented English. As I felt the heft of one of the woolen coats, he encouraged me to try it on. Though obviously too large, with sleeves hanging down well beyond my hands, and clearly military, it suggested a more elegant, peaceful time. The lining was stamped 1946. Discussion on this visit, and another the following Sunday, revealed that the seller was from Iran, and that he had been a journalist and had come to London in 1987, but not much more. He didn't make clear to me then, nor after, how or where he obtained Swedish army clothing that had been stored somewhere for more than 60 years. But he promised to bring a coat in my size the next Sunday. So the following week, I went back and he did have a coat that more or less fit me, which I now own. It required a bit of modification by a tailor in, in Seattle who had arrived in the U.S. penniless at the time the Iranian came to London. The coat is really splendid and without fail elicits comments from total strangers each time I wear it out in public. Invariably, and interestingly to me, it's men who ask where I got it. Of course, I only know where, as in at what marketplace I got the coat, but I have no real idea how it got to me. In the hopes of learning something of that trajectory, I asked the Iranian, who had told me his name was Arian, if we could meet for coffee. He said that would be possible and gave me a cell number, which a few la days later I called. We set up a meeting place and time, and he didn't show up. Reached by phone, he apologized and suggested an email exchange. I tried to assure him that I had nothing to do with politics, Iranian or otherwise, but actually I was in England to investigate the convoluted history of a chemical, alum, a mineral salt mined in various places around the globe. And as well I knew, for centuries, trade in this harmless crystal had led to great political intrigue, even war. It didn't seem likely I could readily convince him that I was researching an arcane substance and that I had no connection to the Middle East, especially since it probably appeared to him, as it did to me, that we shared some basic genetic material. Emailing with Arian wasn't any more efficacious than our other exchanges had been. But a couple months after returning to Seattle, I received a philosophic message from him. I had asked how he got into the trade of Swedish army coats. By way of response, he explained that when he had been a university student, 
a sociology professor of his, had taught him something he never forgot, that in an evolutionary way, people invent and discover while aiming at perfection. Quote, With consideration of your personality and so many other things, you start doing something. If you don't like it, you start doing something else until you find what you like to do. You get experience and your knowledge improves and on the way you find out so many things. You find out who is your customer and what they like, how they can change to attract, how you can change to attract people. So you're on your way to risk-taking and challenge. Sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. I am not a good businessman, but I love what I'm doing. Don't forget, if you dye your woolen jacket, it would shrink. Everything has a story, but usually there's no narrator to tell it, or the narrator exists but is unavailable. Arian has a story about leaving Iran, which he wasn't sharing with me. No doubt his journalist skills at finding sources has served him well locating unissued military goods for resale, but he wasn't sharing them. I had come to Europe to look into the relationship of color to commerce and by proxy of color to international affairs. Not only does everything have a story, but everything also has a color, and usually it's color that does the job of attracting people. I was chasing the Allen trade because of its essential role in fixing color to textile and to history. For centuries, especially around the Renaissance, alum was of prime importance to the Italians, the Belgians, the Belgians, and the British, all producers of woven luxury goods that required dyeing, and alum was essential to that process. As a mordant, alum microscopically unites color with cloth. The word mordant comes from the French word to bite. Alum allows plant and animal dyes to attack the fibers in such a way that they stay put and stay bright, so they don't fade and they don't wash away. I have a copy of the 1907 Atlas of the World's Commerce, published in London. Then as now, London was the center of the market in world commerce. A century ago, that market was made up of thousands of commodities from the natural world. The Atlas is a thick compendium of where the ingredients in the manufactured world come from and it is full of diagrams, charts, and, of course, maps. Sourcing was the basis of the commercial world, as it has been for millennia. Everything listed in the book grew, was harvested, or mined somewhere. Everything cataloged in the atlas came from somewhere specific, and acquiring vast quantities of the stuff demanded the arrival first of soldiers and then colonists to identify, arrange for, and most importantly, secure its supply. The book isn't shy about saying where the best of a class of ingredients came from. However, it says next to nothing about what was required to procure them for the world marketplace. For centuries, the best alum traditionally came from an area in what is now Turkey. By 1907, that source is not even mentioned in the atlas. Despite alum's role in fixing color, its own story has been highly peripatetic. Like Arian, its trajectory was determined by local, national, and especially international politics. Centuries ago, there was a supply of consistently high quality and a growing demand for the product. Which alum got to which dyers was distinctly complicated by a, a vast cast of characters, including the Pope, the Medici, the Ottoman Emperor, and Henry VIII. In the visual arts, the relationship of color to landscape might be differently rendered depending on the season, the time of day, the weather, more personally by emotional, psychological, or political relationships that the artist has to the land. 
what I've found is I've chased around the world looking at abandoned 500-year-old alum mining sites is another more tangential connection between color and place. Large, lucrative mines that caused huge environmental disruptions to tiny locales are today ridiculously difficult to locate. The first chemical industry is now wholly forgotten and almost entirely invisible. But the enterprise can still be evoked standing in the stark landscapes where its production was once centered. I met Arian at the beginning of my Allen field work. As it turned out, he was a true harbinger of the journey ahead. He told me far less than he knew, but what he shared was evocative, poetic, and chilling. From our first words together, I got the sense that the fine coats he was selling had come at a great cost. The story of Allen's connection to color, landscape, and textile is equally full of elegance and foreboding. I put on that proud, graceful coat from a neutral nation aware that it took war and another's exile to reach me. And now I'm going to read a second selection. This is from further in the book, and it's called Alum and the Color of Love. In the summer of 1970, that was a while ago, um, <laughs> having driven north from Berkeley in my yellow VW van, Ravi and I discovered the joy of abandoned logging roads in the Olympic Peninsula. We camped and hiked out to the beach, returning to the campsite at the end of the day to cook dinner and make love. Out on the beach during the daylight, I was slowly making my way through Goethe's theory of color, drawing connections and keeping notes in my blue lab book. We spent a week living out of and adding to a driftwood structure on Shai Shai Beach. I remember after an acid trip together, sitting out in the starlit sand in front of our cabin, I was both completely at peace and fully awake. During the LSD trip, I had watched a long chain of patterns morph into one another. Perhaps primed by Goethe, I sought like a natural scientist to collect them, convinced as I was of their uniqueness and of the importance of bringing them back for further study. But following an unfolding pattern in its rapidly and endlessly evolving permutations proved impossible, if not ridiculous. Especially problematic was my attempt to fix the colors in my mind. As I tried to catalog and label what I'd just seen, my internal note-taking kept me from the un unfurling stuff that was happening next. Frustrated with the futility of trying to find ways of categorizing what I was looking at, I gave in to watching the flow of imagery and gave up notion of storing or ordering the colors. What I was going to remember was the intensity of the visuals, not any particular manifestation or interrelationship between them. Later, in fact, I couldn't reestablish the colors in my mind, in my notebook or in my paintings. Nonetheless, I was excited about and remain high today on the possibility of extending visualizing itself and the process of training myself to better see. It seemed to me that even though I had failed miserably to hold on to what I had seen, the problem of retention was at base one of focus, and focus seemed something I could learn. As I kept reading Goethe, I discovered that he would have agreed, believing as he did that perception, the act of seeing, could be learned, that this was the basis of true observation in the sciences and in the arts. He wrote, quote, How difficult it is to refrain from replacing the thing with its sign to keep the object alive before us instead of killing it with the word. Forty years later, Ravi and I camped on an equally beautiful, deserted, and considerably gentler beach in Kauai, and once again I was wrestling with color and words. 
Sitting in a funny little red folding chair I had brought to Hawaii on the plane, I was writing out longhand a chronicle of my research and travel looking into the history of alum. The search for, the mining, and the development of amazingly complex and very secret formulas for distilling alum from a mineral salt into an industrial commodity were an economic mainstay for several centuries. Yet, yet like all else, and despite how permanent it might have seemed then, alum's strong relationship to color was in fact doomed to disappear. About the time of Goethe's death, the Germans began experimenting with coal tar as a source of creating dye stuffs. And within a few decades, dyeing with natural dyes and alum was obsolete. From ignominious black could come a rainbow of luscious and permanent colors. Coal tar is a stinky residue left over from burning coal. Northern Europe was overflowing in the black goo, and the initial experiments were aimed simply at finding something to do with the unwanted stockpile. As the field of what became known as organic chemistry developed, the chemists realized that they could literally manufacture color itself, not just the mordant for making it bright. What this meant in practice was that a place like Germany, poorly endowed in natural resources and without colonies, remember that atlas, to supply such exotics as indigo and cochineal, could in fact produce color in abandon. The organic chemist developed an elegant solution to the problem of creating permanent colors. Earlier, the chemistry devoted to, to alum had required an enormous amount of very complicated effort across both space and time to turn the salt into a mordant. The act of synthesizing color was, of course, one of applied and concentrated focus. Looking at what transpired for centuries as men labored far and wide to obtain and cook alum to get a hold of color is fascinating for its essential messiness. Fascinating, I think, for what it tells us about how we attempt to manage the unmanageable and retrieve the irretrievable. Considering the conundrum of color for several days while lying on a beach may be actually as permanent as color ever gets. Thank you. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Munir Baken and August Denhard and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Proventure and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.